much that could be said uh, in this uh, great, great subject, but uh, I haven't used the word gospel, not because it's not a wonderful word, not because I'm unwilling to, or anything like that, but I have simply been trying to present some of these thoughts in what we might say is, uh, I hope, consistent with scripture language, but at the same time a bit non-stereotypical. And one of the things that uh, I wanted to do as we close this up, uh, round it up, was then to point out that the gospel, which means good news, is that we are saved for the purpose of being a holy people set apart for the glory of God. That sanctification is part of what God is accomplishing in and through us for his glory, for his glory. And that's good news. And I think it's good news that God accomplishes in us what we cannot accomplish ourselves. And so as we see that picture of the heavenly father, the husbandman, uh, cleansing us, purging us, caring for us as we're ingrafted into Christ, I believe that is hope writ large. I'd like to take you for just a moment over to 1 Peter 5, one or two other little loops to close up here. You've heard me speak on a, from a number of different perspectives on the issue of humility, and by this time, uh, I would hope some things are beginning to, to uh, get wired together in this whole business of pride and humility. Uh, I propose to you that our Reformation forefathers well understood that pride was the root sin from which all others uh, derived that pride was the sin that brought Lucifer into his estate as the devil, that he was lifted up. And we're told that in the most interesting context in Timothy uh, about people who are young in the faith not being given too much responsibility and authority too soon, lest they fall into the condemnation occurred by the devil. And so, with that in mind, then, in 1 Peter 5, we find, uh, again, how this is woven together. It's like a beautiful tapestry. We keep seeing these different threads, these golden threads appearing and reappearing in that divine picture of the whole counsel of God. 1 Peter 5, then, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will, be, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse 5. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace 
to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, I propose to you that as we begin to look at the issue of service, we are going to see that humility of mind is an indispensable element of effectual service as surely as it is an evidence of God's sanctifying grace. And still tying another loop within a loop, back for a moment to Matthew chapter 11 and that wonderful call of Jesus Christ to bear the easy yoke. The easy yoke. And you see, as we look at this, if you and I had to take all of these elements and somehow perfectly merge them, I think it would be overwhelming. It would just be overwhelming. And so Jesus Christ is the one who enables this to coalesce for us as a manageable body of truth that far from being overwhelming, I believe rightly understood as a tremendous encouragement to joy. Come unto me, verse 28, he says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's the heavy yoke that men wear? Is it not the yoke of sin and self? Is it not the yoke of guilt and condemnation? Is it not the yoke of inability, disillusionment, betrayal of oneself and others? Is it not the yoke of having to discover in the school of hard knocks that the false gods we so naturally serve will always betray us? And when we've reached the place where in the providence of God he's brought us to some kind of awareness that our efforts have failed and our ways will not work, then this marvelous call of Jesus Christ becomes so beautiful. Because as we become bond slaves to Christ, we're liberated from being bond slaves to sin. And being a bond slave of Jesus Christ is an easy yoke, beloved, not only because he is able, but because of who he is. He is a gentle shepherd. He is a gentle Savior. And so he says then, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You shall find rest for your soul. Now, the last thing I want to say by way of sanctification is just a comment on the subject of love. And we could go to passages such as in 1 John where it's pointed out that if we don't love our brother whom we have seen, how can we say we love God whom we have not seen? And I hope that as you walk away from this, as I tried to be honest with you right from the first, I couldn't deal with everything. And the whole subject of loving one another is a vast subject. And I had to necessarily make choices uh, when I proposed this as one of several subjects. But I would submit that if you look at the passages that we have have been examining, that you'll begin to see that love is one of the many fruits that come out of that sanctifying grace. So is gentleness, 
so is forbearance, so is discipline, self-discipline, so is self-denial. And so you see there's a whole cluster of the fruit of the Spirit that I simply don't have time to deal with. But I at least wanted to mention it so that hopefully you don't walk away from here thinking that I was by inference trying to somehow play it down or in any way suggest that it was not important. But like everything else, every single mosaic in that great, uh, great, uh, if you will, uh, uh, picture of the kingdom that is, is uh, woven there in that tapestry of the counsel of God, uh, love is a, is a great, great part. Now, I want to conclude today by addressing, uh, albeit briefly, the issue of service. And I think this is a good place to remember afresh, always with that, just an awareness of that contrast, that today's all-encompassing, obsessive, and heresy-ridden philosophies of self-love and self-service are everywhere. We live in a me-first society. And self-absorption that would have been abominable to our Puritan ancestors today we coexist with, but for the grace of God, with scarcely a blush. In the time of the Reformation, if a person did not embrace the idea of willing service to others, his testimony was considered suspect. Selflessness was expected as a matter of fact as one of the fruits of redemption and sanctification. And so I want to then especially look, albeit briefly, at the very heart of service as Jesus Christ uh, addressed this. And the first place then I want to take you are to a couple of passages in the Gospels. Matthew, if you will, 25. And when I read this passage, I then want to try to identify in a sense, the two sides of service that come as part of the great business of living for Jesus Christ. Verse 31 of Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. More of that wonderful sovereignty you see there. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, 
even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want to propose to you that the Reformed perspective on service, interestingly enough, never takes its eyes off Jesus Christ. God is the center of all our service. And when you think of Christian service, of biblical service, I would like you to think of it this way. There's just two kinds, and I've chosen to call them indirect and direct indirect and direct. And you and I have just read a powerful exposition and explanation of the significance of indirect service or the lack thereof and the respective consequences for good or ill. Jesus Christ is declaring unequivocally and authoritatively that to serve any of his brethren especially and to serve any that are needy whom he sends our way constitutes service to him. Like it or not, he sovereignly declares that connectedness with those we are called to serve. Now, this really helps put feet on such a statement as whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Whether you are feeding someone in a soup kitchen, which is kind of one of the more interesting ways. And remember that book, The Tragedy of Compassion, America? It's a good one to read if you want to understand how we've muddled this up, how we've messed it up, how we've turned it over to the government, how we've given the business of the diaconal work of mercy to the secular government and how people in the churches have willingly accepted that. And God says, no, that's the business of the kingdom. That's the business of the church. I have often kicked myself that I didn't write the radio station and get the reference. But I remember one night when I was still at Tustin going home late from the air station and listening to national commie radio. Uh, <laughs> there was an interesting... Um, talk show on, uh, on the subject of charity. And I remember they made the point that, I should say National Marxist Radio, that's more honest, more careful, not the other, was dishonest. that's more careful, National Marxist Radio, that when charity is administered by governmental agencies, approximately three to five cents of every dollar goes to the needy recipients. 
approximately 95% goes to the bureaucratic parasites, my word, that administer the charity. And then they pointed out that churches, and they didn't make any distinction between liberal or anything, I wouldn't expect them to understand it, they just said churches, that when churches administer charity, approximately 95 cents out of every charity dollar goes to the recipients. Doesn't prove anything, but what does that tell you? Doesn't that tell you? You can't mock God. We live in a cause and effect world. And when we try to do things in the, you know, in the strength of our own intellect, oh, do we mess things up and pollute them. And you see, the business of the kingdom in terms of interfacing with the world is to behave toward the world and the people in the world and toward those in the kingdom the way God commands. Now, here's a little codicil to that. Why is that so significant? Think for just a minute. What are the two most powerful ways historically that we have seen the church influence the unbelieving world to respond to the gospel? I submit the two ways are biblical charity and biblical suffering. Do you realize that there have been more communists in Russia and those other regimes through the 70 years in Russia and lesser years that were brought to belief in Jesus Christ by the way Christians suffered in the prison camps than any other reason. That time and again, there are accounts and records of communists coming to faith in Christ because they were baffled as to how the Christians could receive that suffering and not become vindictive and bitter and consumed with hate. You see, when things are going well, such as in the 20s, before the crash, and in the 1890s when everybody thought that the uh, millennium had come, I say everybody, a lot of people did, uh, that it was very hard sometimes to tell where Christianity left off and kind of social do-goodism took over. But it's not that way anymore. And I submit the only people who have the handle on how to deal with these very painful issues are the Christians. And you see, in times of prosperity, there's not a whole lot of difference sometimes between a Christian and a non-believer. But let real tragedy come, and you start seeing differences. You really see some profound differences. And so you see difference in the way that members of the kingdom administer charity from the way the world administers it. Now, does God call us then to serve him specifically and explicitly? I submit he does. Turn with me, please, for a moment to Colossians 3. And this rather niftily ties this together. Verses 22 through 24. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, interesting word, as for the Lord rather than for men. You see that attitudinal direction that's commanded? That's a conscious idea in the frontal lobe. 
that when you are serving others, that specifically and explicitly to be an expression of conscious, willful service to God, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. And then he lays it out flat at the end of verse 24. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's who you serve. Whatever you're doing, if you're really one of his children, you are really engrafted into him, you are growing in Christ, it's him you are serving. That's a non-negotiable. And if it's washing dishes, or sweeping the floor, or going to work, or doing your homework, whatever, it's him that we serve. And then over to Proverbs 19 and verse 17 for a moment. Again, a good Old Testament insight here, Old Covenant insight. Proverbs 19:17. He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. Now you want to talk about a tight connection. There it is. He who lends to a poor man lends to the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. There's a sense in which you can't outgive God. Yes, sir? How do you handle? Well, isn't that interesting? That if you and I try as individuals to handle the homeless, I predict you and I will be overwhelmed because it's overwhelming. And in fact, it's interesting that when we had the June Institute down in San Diego, one of the sort of unpleasant surprises that we ended up with uh, having to deal with and probably have to wrestle with as the location next year is uh, in that big auditorium uh, that we rented near downtown. I think I've got that right, haven't I? Skipped the Civic Auditorium. The old convention center. Thank you. That when we came out in the evening here under that big balcony, you, know, you come out on the second deck, I mean the second floor, and uh, you walk down the steps, and here are all these homeless people lined up. And I'll tell you, that, that was a little bit threatening to some of the folks and some of the gals that were alone, and, and it presented a problem. Now, I've heard the other day, I haven't seen it in print, so it may be spurious, I'm trying to be careful with this, but I heard the other day in what I think is a reliable source that the state of New York is quietly offering to buy one-way tickets for street people who want to come to California. Now that may be heresy, but I have heard that. If anybody can get a, tr a line on that, I really would like to know if you can get a verification. Uh, because the source I heard it from at least was a source. I think it's in validity. Pat? In harsh weather. Uh, so if, again, Pat, since I do see you periodically, if you can find the source, I'd like to know that. Now, uh, moving on uh, quickly here, uh, let's see. Uh, I lost my place in my meander. Colossians 3. Uh, oh, I read that. <laughs> All right. Uh, then let's go over briefly to John chapter 13. John 13. And looking at verse 12 and following. This is the occasion of the Last Supper events. Great subject area of the Gospel of John. 
And before that Last Supper discourse, Jesus did something. Uh, he, as you remember, uh, took a towel and girded himself and washed the feet of the disciples. Verse 12, And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, I'm just going to leave this one to sit on the back burner. You do whatever with it you want. I am not now calling the OPC to a foot washing ceremony, just for the record, just for the record. But I am saying that in that particular thing, and I think we have a clear, clear indication that Christ used that as a paradigm of service. And as somebody once said, foolish literalism is the hobgoblin of little minds. And if we believe that this is an impeccable requirement to foot wash, uh, we may smell defeat if we try, <laughs> if we try to implement it uh, authoritatively. Uh, so uh, you may think I'm a bit of a heel for having brought it up, but but anyway, I hope you get. I hope. Wait, what? Never mind. Uh, Skip will have some words for me Monday. Deservedly so. Deservedly so. And then uh, over to Matthew, uh, chapter 25, if you will, please. Oh, I'm sorry, 23. Excuse me, I got my read the wrong line there. Matthew 23. And here he deals with the failure of the church of that day to properly address this issue of service. Beginning with verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their flactories and lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, and he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Your servant. You see that? And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, but whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Oh boy, you know, we could do such wonderful things with that. There's one of those places he said that. He kept saying it on different occasions. And one of the ways we exhibit an implementation of a belief in that principle is the willingness to be a servant after the pattern of Jesus Christ. And then over in Mark 10, Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 35, 
And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to him, asked, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That was a piggy request, in my opinion. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. I break out into a cold sweat every time I read that. Whew. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, getting those, the children you know, back on track again, he says, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. See, that contrast, that separation, that difference, that distinctiveness. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Quick thought by way of just a caution. I really believe that one of the reasons service has such a dirty name today, generally in the United States, is because there were admitted abuses of people who served in times past, people in charities taken advantage of. And I think we can see certainly abuses even within the church and the teaching of submission of wives. Many husbands believe their wives were meant to simply be nothing but a, a property slave. And that was not blessed. But this is again one of those reminders that we're not to think reactively. Remember that every single principle and truth in the word of God has been abused by multitudes. And if you throw out a truth because it's been abused by somebody, you'll throw out everything. So you simply have to sadly recognize the abuse and use that as an incentive to go back to top dead center and see what says the scripture. And so you and I then are called not to think reactively, but to rejoice in the clear guidance that the word of God gives us in service. And I want to take you just to a couple of texts. First to Romans 12. And you see, I think this is part of the easy yoke of Jesus Christ were given wise guidance, wise and wonderful guidance. Romans 12, beginning with verse 6. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, 
cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We recognize in teaching that one of the ways that you help reinforce what we've presumably learned and learned to apply that which we have been taught is to do a thing that we call homework or you might call it application. And I'm going to recommend you take this portion, Romans 12, verses 6 through 21. And before a lot of this grows cold, with your family, sit down. Now, Tony gave us some good exhortation on taking stock in the family. And here is something that would be, I think, a way of helping the family sort of strengthen those analytical and theological mental muscles. Go through this text and see if you can identify which are the parts or the exhortations to inward truth and conceptual rectitude, conceptual righteousness, and which are the expressions of outward service to the Lord by serving the other. And they're all mixed in with each other. Very, very interesting. How Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, has mixed these up. So notice he says in verse 7, if in service, serving. He who teaches in his teaching. He who exhorts with exhortation. So on. those are ones clearly that provide service to others. Let love be without hypocrisy. As you exhibit love, that's outward. But where is hypocrisy seated if it's there? That's in the inner man, isn't it? Abhor what is evil. Is that an inward or an outward service? That's an attitudinal, perceptual, inward frame of mind, isn't it? Remember that he said earlier, Paul said, or I say earlier, earlier in our talk, not earlier in the chronology of the New Testament, that those who are not saved didn't receive a love of the truth. Well, again, you see, as we learn this wonderful enrichment business, we see that a love of the truth always implies a hatred of what's evil. The two do go together just like the two sides of the same coin. So this is a little fun exercise that I would hope might bear some good fruit as you very carefully go through that and see if you can dissect out which of each of those exhortations is that inward or that outward service. And then over for a moment uh, to one other text in 1 Peter. And that's in 1 Peter chapter 2. And how much time have I got, Len? 20 minutes. 20 minutes. 
praise God, I think we may wind this up. What may be the very first time in my life I ever actually met a speaking deadline. First Peter chapter 2. And I want to read, first of all, 1 through 5. Now, by this time, I hope you see, and I wanted Romans 12, that portion, to uh, give you a clue if you hadn't already picked it up, that service to God is always tightly tied to service to others, but not exclusively. And that chapter 12 is a little clue. Holy Spirit's saying there's some things that are specifically God word that's direct service and then some that are specifically man word as an expression of indirect service to God. And now let's see how the scripture tightens this down. 1 Peter 2 1 through 5 Therefore putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Boy, that's rich, isn't it? Yeah, that's powerful. And notice he says grow in respect to salvation. That's one of those clues where he's literally saying you can't separate sanctification from salvation. Because when you're saved, you're saved to be sanctified. And when you grow, you're growing with respect to the salvation that was there. That's one of the prima facie clues you were saved. That you may grow with respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. There's that evidential clue. If you really have tasted God's saving grace, you're going to grow with respect to salvation. And verse 4, coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men. Ooh, remember we were talking about separation, rejection? You see, Christ himself is this living stone rejected. But choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ as a holy priesthood. Do you realize what he's talking about, especially and particularly? He's talking about right worship. Especially, and most pointed all, it spills out beyond just the bounds of worship. But in Jesus Christ, we're to be a holy priesthood who comes with the sacrifice of adoring and loving worship. By now you ought to see the great big loop that just got closed you see with that text because where did we start out worship and epistemology remember how do you know that what you know is truthful do you believe there's such a thing as truth when men deny truth they can't worship when you know truth the first call above all else is to worship God who is the source of all truth how do I worship him inwardly as well as outwardly par excellence by having a love of the truth and being jealous for its every element Romans chapter 12. Now let's go back there for a moment. Romans 12. Now you remember I suggested to you that that passage of Romans 12 which deals from verse 3 on 
with the many gifts given to the body by God. And those gifts are to be expressed both directly and indirectly as service to the Lord. Look how he begins this chapter that moves into the great application of those mighty doctrines that he's laid down in the earlier part of this great epistle. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Your bodies, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now think for a minute. What is the most disciplined, intense, self-denying, God-glorifying, God-preeminencing act you can possibly do in this life is to participate in a properly ordered service of worship. Now obviously worship spills out beyond that, but that's the core. And he says, we're to come with redeemed bodies, if you will, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable, of course, because we're in Christ, as a spiritual service of worship. And then he says, don't be what? Oh my, here we come to contrast and antithesis. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We read that earlier in another context. And you see, there's the negative, if you will, and the positive. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And then he says, how does it happen? By the renewing of your mind. How does your mind get renewed? By the truth, the living, supernatural truth of God. Now, isn't this incredible? That this marvelously, in one sense, complex mosaic of glory that's going to take us an eternity to appreciate, yet at its heart is simple enough for a child. And what unites that, that's the person of Jesus Christ. The complexity and the simplicity is perfectly married in the person of Jesus. That's one of the countless reasons that we are to worship him after we're redeemed, not only for redemption, but the fact that he is the one who makes sense out of the universe and makes sense out of Christianity and makes sense out of redemption and makes sense out of everything. And remember, you look at the world, and the world has reached the place of intellectual despair. And because they don't believe there's knowable truth, the world has retreated inward, inward like a person sitting in the corner of a nuthouse and looking sort of at their metaphysical navel and saying nothing because they're so utterly self-absorbed and paralyzed because of that. We're living in a world that's gone to mysticism and the occult and to witchcraft. Scientists are embracing witchcraft. Because you see, they've had no unifying truth with which to manage the incredible power of science. Because they've left Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, out of the picture. And because they've rejected theology as the queen of the sciences. Thank you, Len. So, beloved, we've come this week, in a sense, around a tapestry a tapestry of the good news. And the good news is a bearable yoke. It's an easy yoke. Now Jesus said, sit down and count the cost before you enter the kingdom. 
And I want to be justly accused of being mealy-mouthed. It's tough. And there's a warfare. And you better believe there's a warfare. And you better not be seduced into thinking it's a pushover. The number of heresies out there today are uncountable. And the number of people who would all too cheerfully seduce you into a rejection of God and a self-worship, I believe, are beyond count now. But God has always been pleased to accomplish his purposes redemptive as well as judgmental in every century. And it's true that sometimes the church is reduced to a remnant. And I say that's God's business. Because we don't do things on the basis of majority and number. We do things on the basis of a sovereign God. If by his grace we understand this, his truth gives us our marching orders. It's his truth that defines what we think and what we do with what we think. It's his truth that corrects us and his truth that enables us as we interact with each other to exercise a corrective influence that's a dynamic demonstration of the redemptive power of God not only in salvation but sanctification. The growing church is a vindication of a real Lord building his church. And when we are content with mediocrity, we're content with a terrible, terrible crust given to our God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's go there for a moment. Oh, bear with me a minute. I would like you to go back for just a second. To, let's see if I can find it. What was the text they gave you before Romans 12? First Peter, let's go back to 1 Peter 2. From, I nearly forgot one detail that I think is very, very significant in that. And this is, by the way, happened several times uh, that I've been in the process of moving somewhere and somebody comes up to me and then they propose something that is clearly on track with what I've been working with. First uh, Peter 2. Let's see if I can find First Peter 2. All right. First Peter 2. Well, I can't find the word I want. It was the word therefore. The point was, this young man came up to me at the break and he mentioned that he had come to see that with Paul, you just have to take it as is because I can't locate it and I'll start no. Where, where, where? First. Oh, verse. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. See, we have to help one another. See, that's that wonderful helping one another stuff. Boy, that's a comfort when you get old and feeble and that stuff, you know. First Peter 2. There it is. There's the therefore. Yes, thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for helping me. You see, indirectly. Da 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 da. Um, Therefore, he says, putting aside all malice and so on. Now, if you go back to the uh, last part of chapter 1, he says, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. You see that word of God there, that's marvelous. And then he quotes from the Old Testament and then says, 
But the word of the Lord abides forever, verse 23. And this is the word which we preach to you, therefore. Now Paul does the same thing as Peter does. That he gives us doctrine, and then there's a therefore. See, you get doctrine, you get truth, and then there's always an applicatory therefore. And the young man that brought this up, I was just delighted when he said that, pointed out that when he was in a previous genre, if I can put that kindly, uh, they would often be told the therefores, but not went bef- what went before. And you see, we have the privilege of knowing that what went before. The character of God, the sovereignty of God, the sovereign God of the heaven and earth, sovereignly accomplishing redemption, sovereignly applying it, sovereignly sanctifying us through His sovereign word. And then we can take those therefores and with joy apply them because Jesus is carrying that burden. And that's what I, uh, I forgot to mention. So I thank you for your forbearance. Now let's go over to 1 Corinthians 6. And how much do I have? Five minutes, Lynn? Five minutes. Okay. Five minutes. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6. End of the chapter. Now, in the earlier part of the chapter, he's been talking about uh, the issue of immorality and that uh, we are not to partake of it. And a man shouldn't go into a prostitute because of all sorts of problems with that. And he sums it up in verse 18 with the uh, exhortation to flee immorality. And that's, of course, a very obvious way of avoiding temptation and of being holy. And then he says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And that you are not your own. You're not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And of course the price was the death of resurrection of Jesus Christ. The price was the perfect life of Christ. The price was his incarnation. The price was his leaving glory all for us in order to glorify him. And hence for God. And so you see there again as one of those wonderful truths that starts and brings us right back to where we started. And how do I glorify God in my body? By taking the truths He's given as there was both the cause and the consequence of redemption that we can embrace these and one of them is we're not our own. Now when we're not our own that really puts everything in God's court, doesn't it? That really does. Remember I said to you early in this game one of the pernicious lies we teach our children is independence. Oh, how wicked. God have mercy on us. And if we're not teaching our children that they're servants of the living God and that God owns them, we've betrayed them. And we've betrayed them terribly. And then over to Second Peter, if you will, to two texts I want to finish up with. A little reminder of these basics. Beginning with verse 12 of 2 Peter 1, Therefore I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Aha, see, i got good precedence there. I've been trying to remind you of things you already know. It's still proper to do that. And have been established in the truth, which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. And I certainly hope these four days have been 
sources of reminder, times of reminder. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. There's again, you see that remembrance, that disciplined thinking. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have a prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He says, you do well to pay attention. And then he says, what's the first thing I want you to know? No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Oh, my. Oh, my, oh, my. What an incredible call to humble our arrogant, proud hearts, but for the grace of God, before that great body of truth, and to pray for the grace to be jealous for every jot and tittle of biblical truth. Because no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so how does Peter end that great call? Look how he ties sanctification and holiness with this business of the Scriptures. Verse 14 of chapter 3 of Second Peter. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. There's that honesty, you see. Which the untaught, and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, oh, there's one of those therefores. Beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he ends with a doxology. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Love the word. Be jealous for it. Count its truths dearer than life itself. Understand that he's the giver of it and the teacher of it, the one who sovereignly applies it. And let's pray, pray, pray that we'll live it. We'll live it to his glory. We'll live it with all our heart. That we'll live it humbly before him. That we'll live it in love and a spirit of service. Amen. Let's pray. We would say with the disciples, Lord of old, this is impossible. It's impossible for us in the flesh. But we thank you 
that what's impossible with men is possible with God. And we thank you for the privilege of remembering and being reminded that you are the architect of our salvation and sanctification. We thank you for a Messiah who is not only the author but the finisher of our faith. What blessed hope, what blessed hope, O God of hosts. And for that we praise you this day. And so we ask you, Lord, to stir us up, not just emotionally in a well-intentioned little spurt of, of a sort of keener consciousness, but, O oh God, will you move us? Will you move us, O oh God, to a deeper and more abiding reverence of your word, of a deeper love of it, and a more mature commitment to live it obediently? as an evidence of your grace. We thank you that you purge us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit engrafted us into you. We thank you. We thank you, God the Father. We thank you, God the Son. We thank you, God the Spirit, for such redemption in Jesus Christ. In the glorious name of Jesus Christ, we ask this. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.